But in real estate, there are so many opportunities to invest safely. And, you know, part of that can be reflected in the debt service coverage ratio, you know, the margin of safety between your net operating income and your debt payments, things like that. There's so many good ways to invest that you shouldn't have to speculate. And so I recommend that people really think through that. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the great pleasure of having Paul Moore with me today. Paul, how are things up in Virginia? Hey, great. Probably about the same as where you are. It's been hot. It's been muggy, but today we had a huge thunderstorm. We didn't get the rain yet. It's been pretty miserable, though. It's 90 plus degrees when I get up in the morning and go for the run, so that's not Paul, if you don't mind, do me a favor and tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into the space. Yeah, so I started out with an engineering degree, which was my first big mistake. And uh, I didn't know who I was, didn't know what I was supposed to do. I just knew I did really good in math and science, but uh, I was a marketing guy at heart. And so fortunately, I got an MBA, went to Ford Motor Company. Uh, Five years later, started my own company with a business partner. We sold that to a publicly traded firm in 97. I moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, hoping to raise our kids in a you know, rural environment and got into flipping houses in 2000 before there was even the word flip. Then um, started flipping waterfront lots, building ground up modular houses, uh, stick built construction. And I learned something, Jerome, that your audience might really be interested in. I learned that you shouldn't build a house from the ground up if you don't even know how to tighten your own doorknob. I don't know what you think, but that's just what I came to. Anyway, that's another story for another day, my friend. But uh, we did a subdivision and I was always trying to figure out how to get into commercial real estate. I wasn't really sure how. We rode through the 2008 crisis. And then in 2011, a friend of mine and I were investing in oil and gas in North Dakota and we came across this opportunity to build housing for the oil workers. And so we built a um, very nice multifamily property. We own and operated that for a number of years. And uh, after a number of years at that, I realized I really do want to be a multifamily. And I really don't want to be a ground up developer anymore because of the risk. I mean, I, I know I look 40 probably, but I'm actually in my mid 50s. And I actually thought it would be a really bad idea if there's another huge downturn and I'm in the middle of developing something. So I decided I wanted to do more like class B multifamily. I ended up writing a book on that, linked up with Michael Blanc, who'd also written books and things like that. Anyway, so that's how I ended up getting in commercial real estate in the first place. Nice, nice. And so it seems like you've touched kind of all the parts and pieces and been able to be opportunistic along the way, which a lot of people try to time stuff and end up in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Uh, The merry-go-round stops at some point, right? Yeah, right. Get in and out. The thing that I appreciated before we started recording was just how transparent you were about um, doing deals and the mistakes that have been made along the way. 
And so, you know, would you be willing to share maybe a couple of those misstep stories and kind of what happened and how you fix those? Yeah. And so I'll tell you as an overall overarching principle over the last 40 years or whatever, um, I think my biggest mistake was not understanding the difference between investing and speculating. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. So like when I threw a lot of money down a hole in the ground in North Dakota, that was speculating because there was no guarantee there was going to be any oil come out. When I invested in a wireless internet company in 40 degree below North Dakota, not really knowing that the technology didn't work in sub-zero temperatures like that. I mean, that was speculating on a lot of things. But in real estate, there are so many opportunities to invest safely. And, you know, part of that can be reflected in the debt service coverage ratio, you know, the margin of safety between your net operating income and your debt payments, things like that. There's so many good ways to invest that you shouldn't have to speculate. And so I recommend that people really think through that. One thing I did really well was get a mentor. And I got one of the best mentors that I know of in the multifamily world. And I listened to them. I read everything they said to read. I followed their instructions. And that was something I did really well. One big mistake I made was the one time I ignored them they said, really, we highly recommend that you don't buy anything prior to 1978 because of lead-based paint, uh, wrought iron pipes underground that can rot, things like that. And so after years of banging our heads against the wall and not finding a deal that made sense, we looked in places like Greensboro and Charlotte and Raleigh-Durham and you know through the Carolinas and Kentucky and Tennessee and we had a, a lot of frustration. And when we finally got an off-market deal that was 1962, we thought, huh, this fits every criteria we have, except that it was built before 1978. Let's ignore that. And so confirmation bias set in, and we began to think of all the reasons this was a good deal. And we've systematically ignored all the data that contradicted that, which is another huge problem which we know called confirmation bias. You know, you look for evidence to back up your opinion and you ignore evidence that doesn't. And so we ignored the fact that it was 1962. And right about the time we closed, one of our potential investors said, I would never invest with you in that deal because there's 19 buildings, you know, 125 units. And there's a lot, a lot of stuff underground, a lot of underground pipes and plumbing and things that could go bad. And of course, by then we were about to close, but that really struck me as, oh yeah, that reminded me of what my mentor said. And anyway, so that came back to bite us, Jerome. We had started having plumbing problems, you know, a few months into it, but about eight months after we acquired it and closed, one of the buildings had a total plumbing failure. And for some reason in that region where we had the apartment, there wasn't that new technology. I won't go into detail for time's sake, but there's a new technology that can allow you to replumb stuff underground that's collapsing. I don't even know if it's new, but they didn't have that technology in that region. So we were in a big time crunch. 
we end up spending $107,000 to fix that plumbing repair. And that was one building of 19. And it's possible that the other 18 buildings could have the same problem. We had another one that was starting to have some failures. And so we were quite freaked out. You know, that could be, you know, a $2 million repair if it happened to every building. And so that was our big misstep. And I think, again, it went back to not listening carefully to our mentors who had told us back when we went through the program in 2013 or 14 about this. But of course, this was a little later than that. And I guess you could say we conveniently ignored that one fact. Wow. So... You fixed it by ripping everything out and digging it all up and putting new in? Yeah, in that one building we did. Mm -hmm. Were you able to make money on the deal overall? No. Okay. So what happened? Did you guys continue to operate it or did you sell after you got that part done? We had other issues along the way. For example, uh, the population in the city did not grow as much as we expected. Uh, another thing that happened is a nearby apartment that was doing these beautiful renovations. And this was actually a plus when we did due diligence. We went to see their renovations. And I don't know, let's say they had three or four times as many units as we did. We had 125. They had, I would think, three to 400 at least. And they were doing these gorgeous upgrades. And they were going to raise their rents from like, let's say, 800 up to let's say 1050 or 1100. And it looked totally sensible. I mean, they were doing first class, beautiful upgrades. And these apartments looked like a brand new apartment. I mean, all the stuff you can imagine, you know, the cabinets and the granite countertops and the plumbing fixtures and the lighting and paint and flooring, everything was beautiful. Well, after we closed, the word began to leak out that they were not getting those improvements. In other words, they were not getting the 1050 or 1100 a month. They were getting more like 850 a month. Well, we had townhomes, which were nicer to a lot of people to have two stories, not have anybody above or below you. So we had that going for us, but we weren't nearly as nice as them other than that. And so we were trying to increase our rates from 825 up to 875. Well, when they, being much nicer than us, dropped their rates from 1050 or more down to 850, that made it very, very tough for us. So that combined with the water and sewer issues made it a very difficult time. So this is the first time that I've ever talked to someone who said they weren't able to hit their rent projections right and so yeah people say oh yeah just do the renovation and we're going to raise the rents a hundred dollars and it'll be simple and we'll make a fortune but that's not always the case right it I is not always the case brian burke told me a horror story about not being able to raise rents even when he bought an apartment for half half in the in the 2008 2009 era what originally had been paid for it by the previous owner, even at that low price, he was not able to make money. Wow. And because of the 2008, 9, 10 crisis. 
What's up, guys? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yikes. Okay. So we're talking real business now. I mean, there's real money on the line. There's real things that can happen along the way. And, you know, people romanticize this business and think that it's always going to work out perfect. And that's just not true, right? Right. That's true. Wow. So did you make any changes to your process in order to prevent, you know, this misstep from happening again? We made one major change, and that is we concluded that at this time in history, there's so much competition for multifamily. I mean, after all, my books were, you know, called The Perfect Investment. Seriously, we, we really believe that multifamily is an incredible investment. The problem is thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of others believe the same thing and are throwing money at this space. Not long after that at all, we began to evaluate self-storage and mobile home parks. Now, mobile home parks are another type of multifamily, as you know. And we were pleasantly surprised at the opportunities to buy from mom and pop operators in that space. And so in doing that, we were able to significantly improve our investors' returns. Makes sense, man. Makes a lot of sense. And so the final question on these, these are quick episodes is, what words of wisdom would you give the listeners? What I said at the beginning would certainly be one of them, and that would be make sure you invest and not speculate. There's nothing really wrong with speculation, especially if you're young. So a wise old mentor of mine said, make all your mistakes or make most of your mistakes while you're young because you can afford to bounce back, you know, before you have a big mortgage, wife, kids, tuition, etc. So that would be one piece of advice. Make your mistakes while you're young. And I would also say don't plow a whole high percentage of your cash, your capital into one property because it's likely especially if it's speculative, it could be really, really problematic for you if you do that. The other thing I would say related to that is, well, I mean, it's, it's the same thing said in a different way, and that is diversification is really important across assets, geographies, operators. If you can diversify, that's a really good thing to do. At the same time, this is the counter to that. I had a friend who ran for governor of Colorado and he said he rubbed shoulders with billionaires and a lot of them were just the same smart as he and I, the same kind of background, same education. And they had done one thing really, really well that my business partner and I did not do well over the years. And that is they stuck with one thing doggedly for like 40 years. Saying yes to one thing means saying no to 10,000 potential distractions. And if I had to do over again, that's what I'd really want to do is I'd really want to focus on doing one thing really well. Being the expert. Yep. Being the expert. Even if you passively invest in a diversification of things you don't know as well. Wow. So I got to ask because you've been opportunistic across your career. Like, Does being in the one thing keep you from being opportunistic? 
Hmm. That's a really good question. I think it's really important. I think I just touched on this a minute ago to be an expert. I mean, like the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon, you know, it talks about becoming an expert and saying no to 10,000 distractions. Warren Buffett said successful people say no a lot. The very most successful people say no almost all the time. And so as far as what you spend your time on, yeah, I think you should be dialed in and hyper-focused. As far as what you're willing to invest and profit from, I think it's fine to be diversified into lots of asset classes and have your money spread out into some things that are very different. For example, real estate and gold and silver couldn't be much more different. But it's not a bad idea to have some insurance you know, in the sense of having some gold and silver in times like this, when we wonder what's going to happen to the U.S. dollar and the economy. But I wouldn't want to become a gold bug, a gold expert and a real estate expert. It would be too hard. Got it. Got it. Paul, I'm really grateful for you coming on and sharing your wisdom with the folks. Um, If they want to get in contact with you or learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? They should come to my website, which is wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. Awesome. I appreciate your time. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jerome. It was an honor. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.